when, when, as you mentioned, you, you know, people say, oh, Freud is all about sex. Uh, they get it the wrong way around because what, what, what is actually the case is that sex is actually about everything. Yo, what's going down? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden-Smith. And I'm Troy Polidori. And it's starting to get warm here in Sydney, my friend. I can feel it. It's in my room. You know how you can tell that it's starting to get warm in Sydney? It's it's, getting it's not... Because it feels no, warm? It, it's, even worse, it's even worse than that. Like, if you're inside all day and you want to know if it's getting warm, all you have to do is just measure the amount of cockroaches that you see. If, if there are no cockroaches, it's cold outside and it's winter. If there are a few cockroaches, it's starting to get warmer. And guess what? I saw the first cockroach today and I saw the first mosquito today. That must mean it's warm outside. God damn. Yeah, there's some causation correlation issues there, but, you know, whatever, Australia. No, dude, it's a causation thing because in the wintertime, the cockroaches go underground and they hide. But in the summertime, they come up and they go in everywhere. They're everywhere here. It's fucking... And mosquitoes. Mosquitoes don't exist in the wintertime. Like, literally, they are just gone. And then in the summertime, they are everywhere. <laughs> ah! Yeah, I can't anyway. do that, man. I'm never going to Australia. Like, I live in, like, the most lush part of the United States of America, and... I'm still scared of Australia. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, at least the weather is nice and sunny and all of that shit, and there's no storms and earthquakes and whatnot. So I'll take the good with the bad. Uh, or I'll take the bad with the good. What I is guess. the, like, go-to natural disaster in Australia? Or at least in uh, the they part do, where Sydney is. Yeah, I mean, they can get, um, like, really bad dust storms here. That's a that's a big one. Really bad, really bad. I mean, they do like gnarly thunderstorms, so flooding and things like that is an issue. But dust storms are the weird freak things that happen. If you actually Google like uh, New South Wales or like East Australia dust storms, there's some interesting footage of Sydney where it's just red in the background because there's just dust all over. It's crazy and spooky looking. And then, of course, I'm on the coast where it's less severe than if you even go inward to the desert a little bit more and go westward where it gets really bad. Those towns get ravaged by dust storms. So that would be, that's a bad one. Hmm. Yeah, give me thunderstorms every day over dust storms. True that. So, everybody, we've been teasing it for a few weeks. This is finally the most recent Patron chosen. (laughs) Fuck, maybe. Yeah, it has been quite a while. Oh, yeah. I ended up in the hospital and then that kind of threw things off. And then we couldn't put things together. And then we had to find a right time. And then our guest was in the United States presenting at the Lacan Ecree conference. But we have Isabel Miller on who is going to talk with us about psychoanalysis, philosophy. She is a scholar of psychoanalysis and philosophy who focuses on Lacan, artificial intelligence, sex, technology, etc., etc. And so we have about uh, an hour-long wonderful conversation with her, everything about the fundamentals of psychoanalysis, going all the way up to some cultural criticism criticism stuff, uh, her work and how she talks about ghost in the shell and artificial intelligence and things like that. And then we even talk a little bit about the Bible and do some weird kind of uh, critiques of Paul's theory about the uh, the new body, <laughs> which is fun. As we do, yeah. As we do. 
So yeah, so stick around for that. That's coming up, of course, after some other shit that we got to get into. And if you want to uh, support us in tangible ways, you can always go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn. There you can get access to several different tiers of supports and you get some goodies, including the monthly newsletter we send out with extra shitty minutes and sticky leaves, access to bonus episodes, which we produce, which involve all sorts of sundry topics like movies and um, drug trips that Austin's been on and me reacting in horror <laughs> at his experiences it's a, uh, it's definitely the kind of content that you need in your life, um, and then also the ability to contribute to our next patron-sponsored episode, whatever that, whatever that might be. So go to Patreon.com/slash Owls at Dawn to get access to those things. That is right. So all right, time for the first segment of the episode. This is the shitty minute. This is where one of us gets to rant and rave about something that is pissing us off. Troy has drawn the shitty straw. So Troy, what's got you down, brother? So this is kind of a, a shitty minute that I experience like once every 13 days. Um, and then it lasts, it's very ephemeral. Like it lasts for two seconds and then I'm kind of done with it because it's just so ubiquitous. <laughs> okay. But it really bothers me and upsets me when people say that art is subjective. Do you like get a little like tinge in your spine when someone says that? I guess I hadn't noticed it. Maybe. I don't know. I'm, I'm going to pay more attention the next time somebody says it. Because, I mean, I, I know I, usually when someone says that, it's, it's supposed to be a conversation stopper, right? It's supposed to be a, we're disagreeing about something related to an artistic object. And so I'm going to stop this disagreement, which is uncomfortable, by saying art is subjective, and then we can move on to the next topic, right? Mm-hmm. So it functions yeah. as a conversation stopper. But even if you wanted to take it as a serious um, conversation, conversational element to be discussed, Art is literally objects. <laughs> so literally speaking, art or an artistic object is not subjective because it's not a subject. It's an object. So in that literal sense, in the most possibly literal sense you could take it, art is definitely not subjective. It's literally objects. Now, when someone says art is subjective, what they mean, I think, is your interpretation of the significance of an artistic object is relative yeah. to your experience. Yeah, taste. In some sense. In, yeah. in matters of taste, there is no dispute. That's the classic like medieval um, uh, mantra, right? Mm-hmm. But of course that's wrong <laughs> because we dispute <laughs> over it all the time, right? <laughs> that's what art criticism is. <laughs> it's, it, but it's all, it's, the internet is predicated on that medieval mantra being incorrect. Now, of course, you could just say that, that the whole internet is wrong, which is probably correct, although not for this reason. Um, I mean, would just, you even go so far as to say in matters of taste, there is only dispute? <laughs> <laughs> there must be dispute. Otherwise, we there wouldn't be talking be. about this, right? Like transcendental right. argument, there is dispute. Therefore, all these things happen, right? So, yeah. No, it's, it's now I'm being tongue in cheek here, but it obviously is correct that. Um, there's all these differences over interpretations and over, over the appreciation of significance of different artistic objects. And that's great. Like we discuss these things because they're fun and we love them and we, and we enjoy the process. Right. But it's not purely a matter of like enjoyment based on false pretenses. It's not hmm. purely that there's a lot of that. <laughs> no doubt. Right. Hmm. The internet is just yeah. like filled the brim with, you know, um, dispute over things that aren't real. Right like fictional entities and whatnot or fictional significances. But I think the 
the biggest reason why I, I don't like this artist objective thing, especially when it functions as a conversation stopper, is because it, it, it sort of upholds or posits this binary where either you have to think that there's some absolute, unchanging, eternal significance to every artistic object, or there's nothing. And it's purely about how you personally enjoy the artistic object, and that has no relevance to anybody else. That's what usually mm-hmm. they mean by artist subjective. And it's obviously not either of those, I think. I don't think anyone really believes it's either of those, right? Um, it's pluralistic. It's relativistic. It's um, uncertain. There's, it's not the same thing as like a hard science, right? Um, but artistic appreciation, artistic criticism and discussion – does revolve around the actual nature of the thing and discussing the significance of the thing. And I think Mm -hmm. it's fine to say, look, here's the thing I appreciate about this artistic object. And then you can disagree with me, both in terms of the matters of the contents of what I'm saying, if you think there's like a problem with the logic of my argument or presentation, and also over whether you think the thing that I think is significant is actually significant and why you think otherwise. And that's fine. And it could come out that neither of us is correct or that we're both correct in different ways. Like, that's possible in many different scenarios. Um, and I think that's a lack of appreciation for the multitude of outcomes that can come from an argument um, and from a disputation and from a discussion. We tend to think in this binary of I'm right and you're wrong or vice versa. And it does not have to be that way. Discussion is almost never, very rarely ever that way. Um, so mm. we should be more open to the multitude of outcomes that come with discussion, especially when it comes to discussing art. And not have to retreat into this, well, I just have my own subjective experience with the art. Mm-hmm. You can't criticize that. Like, no, mm-hmm. there's some ways in which it's inappropriate to criticize that. Um, but that does not mean that um, something is not open to criticism because it's quote unquote subjective. There's another way that the phrase art is subjective is used that I think is the one that that I notice more that makes me feel icky. But it isn't like my skin crawls or that I get angry, but I kind of almost just pause and I really, and maybe I'm being kind of smug when I do this, but I kind of just, I just ask, I say, is it? But I don't mean that rhetorically and I don't do it in a way that sounds smug. But I think in my own mind, I'm kind of like, I don't even want to get into this right now because it's just so fucking ubiquitous and everybody just <laughs> says this all the time and it's totally cliche. But I think the person oftentimes is saying it because they're trying to sound more clever than maybe they are, you know? So they take this position of like, well, there are various interpretations of things and we don't really know. So not only is it not – so there's the, the conversation stopper form, but then there's also this as well where it's supposedly viewed as like an enlightened position. And that's the one where I'm kind of like, is it? Oh, yeah, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then, and then I – and then for me, it's a conversation stopper because I just don't want to get into the conversation about that. So they're not <laughs> stopping the conversation. I'm stopping the conversation. <laughs> you should just stop the conversation by saying art is objective and then move on. Um, oh, oh, no, no, but you know, I like, I, just be like, literally, that's an object and then walk away. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and you, you know, I think the point you bring up is really good. We've talked a lot about epistemic humility on this podcast, right? The person who says art is subjective as a way of deflating all the claims that the other person has made or that anybody in the discussion has made mm. is the one who's being most epistemically arrogant. They're yeah. saying this whole mode of discourse elicits no true statements or false statements. It's just kind of meaninglessness, right? Like you're, you're saying about an entire mode of discourse, which many people spend the majority of their lives engaging in, um, 
elicits no true or false statements. Like that's an incredibly strong claim to make, right? Which you need lots of support to make that given, I think the, the ben- sort of the burden of proof relies on, or relies on that person who says that, right? Um, and instead we should just be more open and say, you know what? I'm not sure uh, exactly how matters of taste um, correspond to, you know, like true and false statements, like in the indicative mode or whatever. Um, but I'm open to it and I know that I care a lot about it. So let's actually engage in the discussion and see where it goes. I'm open to the idea that we might come to certain things that are true or that are marginally true that are possibly true or that are multiply true um, and be open to that. Be epistemically, you know, humble and open to the possibilities of knowledge here rather than having some dogmatic claim about what's true and what can be true and what can't be true um, from the outset. The great irony here is that the statement art is subjective is meant to be non-dogmatic, but it actually ends up being metaphysical. Super dogmatic. Like even more dogmatic than the art is objective thing, I think. And I think it's partly because, one, people are afraid of dogmatism. You know, we live in a post-religious world where anything except for science that makes declarative statements must be viewed with suspicion, especially in the humanities or arts, right? But I think people are really afraid of debate. Right. And I know that debate doesn't always feel good because if you have a really strongly held opinion and somebody disagrees with it and you have cathectically imbued yourself into that position, then it feels like you yourself are somehow being smacked down. So this is one way of us kind of protecting ourselves. It's almost like a neurosis where we protect ourselves so that we don't actually allow our our uh our attachments to our opinions to be known publicly. So we just kind of like, hey, you know, art is subjective. Let's not get into it. Let's not debate because if we get into a debate, then someone's feelings are going to get hurt or then my vulnerabilities are going to be revealed as you realize that I'm attached to this thing and you smack me down and then I'm going to get angry and then I'm going to be out of control and then you're going to see that I'm some weird freak or something. So there's a. it seems that there's also this weird anxiety that's underpinning this position as well. So it's like metaphysical and it's anxious and it's dogmatic. Yeah, and there's good reason to have that anxiety. Lots of there's a long tradition of um, arrogant, dumbass men who want nothing more than to just pounce on someone and make them feel bad for thinking something, and that's stupid and horrible. And you're right to sort of dis- have disdain for that, right? But the the response to that should be to celebrate the idea of discussion more than debate. Debate in that narrow mm. sense that we're talking about, because mm. uh, discussion is open to truth and open to knowledge um, and open to being. Corrected and encouraged and amended and everything, and doesn't have to tie, um, you know, belief to personal ideology or whatever. So, um, yeah, there's there's different modes to respond than just to like retreat into our corners and and sort of run away from the idea of discussion. Would you rather live in a world where there's an authoritarian church and an authoritarian state, or where there's just a million little authoritarian like patriarchal dudes? You mean like a like a feudalistic? Well, like just you know, like there's no central state; everything's decentralized. You've got democracy, but the epistemological discourse is run by like patriarchal dudes. But you don't have an authoritarian church anymore. I don't know. This seems too too ambiguous for me to decide. What were you thinking? Well, I'm thinking of the distinction that Zizek makes, kind of between like he'd rather have the. Um, like the central authoritarian or like the authoritarian father than the liberal father. But I, I but that's too kind of like the, the liberal father's too nice for the example. But I'm thinking like you're talking about there's like a history of dudes that um, have kind of taken this position where they've like smacked people down and they've engaged in, let's say, a position of dominance, right? And I wonder like 
is that a sort of post-authoritarian form of like individual authoritarianism? So rather than having a state or a church that is like everyone must go on Sundays and all of society must be structured according to like theocratic principles or whatever, and then you don't have a uh, so that's like a church authoritarianism, and then you don't have an authoritarian state where it's like repressive and stuff like that. But what you just have are just like a bunch of mini despots running around, but uh, they're all operating under the auspices of democracy or something. I don't know why I thought about this. This makes no sense. I'd rather have neither. But I, but <laughs> yeah. I just, I'd yeah. rather have neither. But I just, but I feel like that the latter is actually worse. That if you had a central authoritarian church and a state, then even though it's a centralized power with a lot of concentrated power, at least it isn't dispersed and they're not fucking everywhere that that becomes like a subject position that anyone can occupy insofar as you just are like a dude, right? Yeah, I mean, I was wondering in one sense, I can see why it would be worse just because it's inauthentic. Um, but also it seems easier to change um, the latter than the former. Like, how do you take on an authoritarian state and church? Like maybe over hundreds of years you could reform it, but instantaneously, whereas you could probably like seek to change individual authoritarian, you know, patriarchs or whatever. Maybe not. Maybe that actually makes it harder since it's so dispersed. I don't know. I don't know either. Totally yeah, how, random. How about, how about we just try to build a better society? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's do that. Where we can talk about art and not hate each other for it. Yes, please. That said, if you like Five Finger Death Punch, like, go fuck yourself. No. <laughs> All right, cool. So now we're going to jump into our main segment. As we said at the top of the show, we have a guest on, and this is the fulfillment of the patron-chosen topic, the philosophy of psychoanalysis. Y'all chose it, so y'all get it, and we called on an expert to come in and chat with us. This is Isabel Miller, not Millar. Don't say Millar. Even if you do your homework, you will get it wrong. It is Isabel (laughs) Miller who is on the show. She is a scholar of psychoanalysis and philosophy who specializes in Lacan, AI, sex, and technology. Hello, Isabel. Hello. I'm so glad that you took so much care and effort to pronounce my name, even though now you're going to confuse people because they're going to think my name's Miller when it's actually Miller, but not Millar. Oh, so, I've... So, <laughs> so now we're just all confused. No, I'm joking. No, it's perfect. You're such an you. asshole. You're such an asshole. Now I was like, <laughs> this was a setup. Yeah, I know. I just thought I'd see how the American pronounces it and then laugh. Well, the thing that's ridiculous is this was a conference, too. I think it was I don't know. You were given some paper and it was someone that was like, we just want to welcome her back. We love her here. Blah, blah, blah. Isabel Millar. So I figured they knew you and that they already had your name down. And I was like, and they still said Millar. The bastards. Yeah, they're just probably just trying to make me feel good. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, cool. So... Philosophy of psychoanalysis is the topic. I have no idea why our patrons chose this topic. Um, <laughs> maybe it's their own sort of perversion that they want to work through. Um, so I guess the first thing is, since your work is at the intersection of philosophy and psychoanalysis, can you explain how it is that you bridge those two together? Mm-hmm. Well, um, it's an interesting formulation to say the philosophy of psychoanalysis because um, psychoanalysis uh, is itself a sort of, I mean, a challenge to psychoanalysis, uh, sorry, psychoanalysis is a challenge to philosophy in a sense. Um, 
given that uh, the, the Freudian discovery of the unconscious was where Lacan started off his sort of um, lifelong engagement with philosophy. Um, so in, in a sense, there isn't a philosophy of psychoanalysis um, any more than there is a psychoanalysis of philosophy, but the two are um, very uh, interlinked in a, a very important way that has got epistemological and ontological roots. And they all start off with, I suppose, the question of the unconscious. Do you think that it, is it, could you say that uh, psychoanalysis is a type of meta-philosophy even? Uh, well, again, this is a really complex question because some people would say that's what it is. Uh, what, okay. what, 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 um, Lacan said about his practice in the 1970s was that it was an anti-philosophy. Mm. And um, this this uh, term actually referred to uh, the kind of reaction against the sort of uh, hyper-rationalism um, in the sort of end of the 17th century and, and was, was something associated with um, religious uh, movements to kind of counter the... the this uh, stream in, in French thought. So when 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 Lacan calls himself an calls himself an anti philosopher, it's a very provocative thing to do, given that supposedly he's in the tradition of Enlightenment thought, um, growing out of you know, uh, growing out of the Freudian tradition as well. Uh, so people found it very strange that he would decide to call himself an anti philosopher, given that most of his work had grown out of engaging with philosophy. But that term has mm. a very specific. Um, meaning and i think i may be jumping too far ahead to to get into what he meant by that yet so if we want to i don't know go in some other direction before we get into that particular question well we should add also there's a long history in philosophy of anti-philosophers who then later on become codified as philosophers right yeah nietzsche um nietzsche being the obvious example Spinoza. Right? and then all throughout history yeah yeah yes. people who questioned the sort of guiding dogma of the time are doing philosophy even though because they're against the guiding dogma it's considered anti-philosophy exactly so when but when 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 uh, lacan talks about um philosophy what he has in mind is is specifically a, a pre-modern uh understanding of philosophy um which mm. which he associates with the sort of parmenidean um kind of homologization between being and thinking which for him for after freud Specifically, you can no longer put together because being and thinking for Lacan are not the same thing. Um, so, of course, he goes through this. He he goes about this via various different twists and turns, and engaging with, uh, for example, the astronomy of um, Kepler, uh, Newtonian physics, and the Cartesian method of radical doubt. All these are very uh, important pillars in his articulation of what, what um, for him philosophy was and for what now what psychoanalysis is as a science of the subject um, has to do with philosophy as a as a different um, mode of thought a different discourse hmm. if there were two or three or a handful of I guess elements that define Lacan breaking from Freud. I mean, I think people have very particular 
characterizations, maybe even caricatures in their mind of what they think of Freud, that Freud was sex obsessed, that he thinks that everyone just wants to fuck their mom, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, right? Yeah. What, what do you think Lecon is doing breaking from both, you know, maybe the caricature, but also just breaking from uh, Freudian psychoanalysis, you know, mm-hmm. like depth in relation to topology, that kind of thing, you know, the unconscious as being structured like a language. What are what are the things that are central to Lacanian psychoanalysis that yeah. distinguish it from Freudian psychoanalysis? Well, um, first of all, I mean, Lacan actually wants to return to Freud. He doesn't want to depart from Freud in that sense, because what motivated okay. what motivated him was the the misappropriation of Freud as he saw it and the way that and this people... is in a, wait, real quick if I can this is an historical mm-hmm. concern right because this is at a time when Freud was a little bit in disrepute yes so his yes. return to Freud is kind of an historical maneuver right well, I, kind of but but more that because for, for for Lacan what was missed was that Freud's radical contribution to not just clinical practice but to um, to the theory of psychoanalysis and his ontological discovery uh, was missed by the post-Freudians who tried to kind of um, erase all of these these radical questions and 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 take Freud for uh, something a little bit more akin to sort of a sort of cognitive cognitive psychologist um, mm. and and lose the, the the radicality of what he was saying about sex. Um, and what so when when as you mentioned, you know, people say, "Oh, Freud is all about sex." Uh, they get it the wrong way around because what 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 is actually the case is that sex is actually about everything. Um, but 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 not when I say sex, I don't mean sex as in a sort of substantialized thing that we do between people. I mean that there is a concept that that Freud discovered uh, pertaining to sex, which he was very. Um, was 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 very peculiarly able to to articulate in a way that nobody else had before, um, and this is what he discovered through his method of psychoanalysis: is that sex is not a is not a thing, but it's actually an absence of a thing. Is that the difference between the the mischaracterization of Freud being that uh, everything is sex, whereas if you reverse that and say no, sex is everything, mm-hmm. that has a different meaning, different connotation. It has an absolutely different meaning, yes, because. Um, if if you say oh well everything's about sex it it, it sounds like we're saying um, you know everything that you ever do has some underlying sexual meaning that you actually when you're talking to somebody what you're really thinking about is this and actually what you want to do is that and that's a kind of very superficial and um, and and well erroneous way of understanding the question because actually um, what 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 he was trying to say was that. There is an impasse of meaning which is sexual and sexuality itself results from an impasse of meaning and this impasse of meaning is a uh, a certain gap in knowledge a missing piece of knowledge which we call the unconscious which freud would have called the unconscious so uh this this concept is something which before you even try and talk about sex in psychoanalysis you have to go very very far back to talking about um, to talking about the the modes of um, negation and repression and foreclosure and perversion and all these different concepts that relate to what we could even possibly mean when we're talking about sex in the first place. So it's there are so many layers to get to sex um, that yes, it is all about sex, but sex isn't what you think it is. 
<laughs> why why sex and not I don't know reciprocity exchange um I don't know other forms of communication things like that what what is it about because, the signifier yeah go ahead well, yeah I mean sex isn't um it, well it, it, sex is the opposite of a of a reciprocity certainly for Lacan um sex was a a a non rapport a non relation and it's it's uh something that relates to modes of enjoyment that the subject can achieve and these modes of enjoyment are dependent on your particular your t- t- particular um sexuation of whether it's a masculine or a feminine sexuation which doesn't accord to your biological um makeup but rather to your um to your to your inclination towards enjoyment and so mm. these these modes are not forms of reciprocity they're they're forms of non-relation they are impasses they are things that don't make sense mm. so they're, they're not okay that yeah go yeah, on. yeah. No, no, I was going to say this is really interesting too because so one of the things I get into a lot of conversations with people, especially when I do like film criticism, film analysis, I recently watched the film Antichrist on um, a popular podcast called Show Me the Meaning uh, by Wisecrack, which is, you know, a lot of people that listen to this podcast know us from that. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were having this conversation about how there's a clear sort of like hysteric uh, female sexual position that is played by Charlotte Gainsbourg character and then of course you have like the obsessive that is the psychologist the actual therapist that is played by Willem Dafoe's character right and they're you know like intentionally named man and woman and they go to Mm -hmm. Eden because there's kind of like retelling of the garden myth yada 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 but I was having this conversation and uh, and one of the women that was engaging in a conversation with us had a real problem with this idea that these characters were sexualized that they were that they were stuck within a gender role that this was man and that this was woman you know woman as the hysteric which is you Mm -hmm. know uh, a position that has been kind of placed upon females to discredit them for decades mm-hmm. and decades and decades, right? Mm-hmm. And then the man is the rational, calculating analyst therapist, and she didn't like that. And I was mm-hmm. trying to explain that, no, 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 the notion for Lacan is that sexuation is like a structural or societal position that any body can operate within. Yes. As a matter of fact, you can move between them in an instant, in a moment. They, exactly. they uh, for the Deleuzeans out there, and Isabel briefly and I, we chatted about uh, Deleuze a minute ago, but, you know, they operate at varying degrees of intensity and variation, we might mm-hmm. say, even in mm-hmm. the same moments. So yes. uh, can you explain that a little bit in non-Deleuzean wanky terms for listeners? <laughs> no, yeah. I think that's, you put it very well, exactly. I mean, um, th- this is one controversial thing. It's always been a controversial uh, thing in, in, in Lacan's thought is that people often misunderstand the question of sexuation and that when he's talking about um, male and female sexuation as being logical formulations, people too quickly uh, assume he's saying something that some sort of, um, there's some sort of uh, hyperstatizing thing that makes you, if you're a woman, you're this, and if you're a man, you're this which is exactly the opposite of what Lacan has in mind. I mean, when he's formalising the question of sexuation with lots of funny um, symbols, what he's actually trying to do is, is, is make it so far removed from anything uh, to do with what your, what your body is doing, um, mm-hmm. it, which is completely liberating and, and, and totally feminist and actually the most uh, transgender, feminist, friendly, 
um, theory that you could possibly imagine. So the idea that Lacan was in any way anti-women or anti-gay or anti-trans or anti is just complete nonsense. Um, so, you know, the, 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 the thing is, is that he is very much saying that anybody at any time can occupy any position on that spectrum. The thing, what he does say, though, what's very clear is that for him, masculinity is subsumed by femininity. So if anything, he's basically advocating everyone should be a lot more feminine than they, they than, mm. than masculine because it's a, it's a position which allows for so much more than the masculine position. In that sense... Yeah, it's the... It's the I was, I was going to say that it's the men's rights activists that should really have a problem with. Like, not the <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Is this a symptom of Western capitalism? Is this a symptom of Western post-enlightenment? Like, or is this a universal human sy- symptom? Like, this, uh, this division, this bifurcation of these logical and structural positions that you can occupy as sexuated positions, are these things results of particular, let's say, even more like a... Uh, a larger logic like are they western symptoms or do these things apply to all cultures around the world um that's a a good question but i would say i would say i would say no they're they're specifically um by by their nature they are uh, uh, onto epistemological um symptoms which are inescapable and they 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 structure the very nature of subjectivity itself. So I wouldn't say that they're particular to Western culture, um, even though different manifestations of masculinity or femininity can appear um, in any given culture to be to be differently emphasized. But the 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 antagonism and the the, the question of sexual difference is something that goes far beyond cultural manifestations of sexual difference, and that has much more to do with our mode of becoming subjects um, that mm. that that we can't possibly overcome. Even even that doesn't mean to say that one cannot occupy a position of being a trans person, for example, or being a gender non-conforming person, or being queer, or any of these questions. Um, so this is not to say that to erase the idea of somebody who doesn't identify as masculine or female, feminine. But the idea of the the logic of masculinity and femininity is 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 a is a question for Lacan that has to do with a um, with a more conceptual understanding of what subjectivity is in itself. Mm. Troy and I did a bonus episode on Black Mirror's Striking Vipers. Did you mm-hmm. see Striking Vipers? I do you know. I haven't watched it yet. I haven't got around to it. Okay, I feel like you have to see this because I feel like this would fit perfectly into this. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because that's kind of, you know, these these players that are playing a video game, they embody the avatar of uh, these characters and yeah. then, then they end up having sex through their avatars. But um, it's these two dudes that have a, um, a heterosexual relationship through mm-hmm. the avatars. But then is it... Is it homoerotic? Is there a, like a homosociality thing that's going Like what, right, what exactly right. is going on here? And so okay. it's been a really interesting uh, cultural artifact for yeah. people to, to analyze, especially so, yeah. from like the trans perspective. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah. No, that yeah. sounds interesting. I need to watch that. Yeah. 
Because you've written on Black Mirror before, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, I have. um, I think that uh, particularly I wrote about um, an episode called Archangel, um, which is to do with uh, having a a chip implanted in your your head. What were you talking about in that piece primarily? Well, this this um, the reason I was interested in this particular episode is um, because this the this, the little girl in it um, she gets implanted with a sort of ho- a homing device by her mother to to keep her safe. So she basically is watched at all hours of the day from a remote device from her from her mother's kind of handset, so that her mum can kind of make sure that she's safe. But of course, as the years go by. Um, her mum has to sort of adjust the privacy levels in, in, in her child's uh, in her child's kind of monitoring device because she doesn't want to be an overbearing mother, but at the same time, she is worried about her having sex or taking drugs or whatsoever. Um, and and of course, what ends up happening is that it becomes the mother does become an overbearing force <laughs> for her because she she tries to interfere with her life and and it ends up very gruesomely with. Um, the child murdering her mother and smashing her, her over the head with her monitoring device. And okay. of course it's, it's, it's horrific and it's gruesome, but, but, but what's very, it's very good as a sort of illustration of a sort of clinical idea, which is very fundamental to a Lacanian psychoanalysis, which is of course the question of the mother's desire and the entrance of the name of the father as the law giving presence. And when Lacan says name of the father, he doesn't actually mean father, but it's a a, a metaphor for a, a a system, a symbolic system, which would separate the child from the all-encompassing and overwhelming and enigmatic desire of the mother, who is at once the source of all love and comfort and warmth, but also a, a source of, of, of mystery and, and strangeness, because the mother also wants something else other than the child so this dialectic between the mother and the child and how much the mum wants from the child and how much the child gets from the mother uh is is the kind of basis through which um psychoanalytic um structure is formed according to how the child navigates this process and this is what is called obviously in, in freudian terms the either the oedipal uh complex and ultimately what the way the, navig- the, na- the, wild- the way the child navigates this is via castration, right? So in this black mirror, what you get is a kind of really futuristic way of talking about the navigation of the Oedipal complex and the castration of it, but via technology. And ultimately the child goes mad because the mother is in her, is literally in her head all the time and controls her desire and it, and it drives her mad. So it's a quite nice way of kind of talking about the, this um, dynamic in ways that break free of the sort of Freudian um, dynamic of mother and father and child. And the important thing for Lacan, if, if I remember correctly, and you can you can kind of expand on this, Isabel, is um, that these categories of name of the father and the Oedipal complex and whatnot, these are structural categories, yes. not necessarily referring to specific material realities, right? Exactly, exactly. So um, they're, they're not... They don't. They don't have to correspond to any sort of traditional fa- family structures or male or female ideas of what a parent is or what a mother is or what a father is. They're they're structural um, questions for Lacan always. Yeah. Real quick, I think it might be useful 
to explain the difference for between uh, Lacan and Freud on the question of the unconscious or on the concept mm-hmm. of the unconscious, right? Mm-hmm. Um, can mm-hmm. you just kind of talk about like what was, because f- I think most people think for, you know, Freud, there was like this depth, there was this truth that's like hidden inside of yourself. And then deep yeah. down in there, there's the deep, dark desires and they come out with yeah. Freudian slips and things like that. And that's the really real kind of emerging and popping up and saying, hi, here I am. Um, yeah. And then for Lacan, it's, it's the, the iceberg metaphor you always see. The, the iceberg, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Well, well, well. So, so actually, for Lacan, the the question of the unconscious changes uh, throughout his teaching, and the the most familiar way of under, of talking about Lacan's idea of the unconscious is from his early work, which people often say is uh, the the unconscious is the discourse of the other or the unconscious is structured like a language, uh, or the unconscious is a bit later, the unconscious is the other's desire. So these are all ways of um, externalizing the unconscious as something which is not this sort of substance, this depth that is hidden inside and you have to sort mm. of uncover it, but rather the outside the subject, which exists outside the subject by virtue of the subject entering into a symbolic, shared symbolic universe, which they're not in control of because we're just born into this world and we have to deal with whatever structures are already here. So in that sense, the unconscious was structural for Lacan at the beginning because it's to do with things that we don't control that are the laws of our societies, um, which we have to basically uh, kind of muscle into and and fit into uh, as best as we can. But Mm. later on, he, he, his, his, ways of talking about the unconscious do change. And uh, of course, towards the end of his seminar, he starts talking about the speaking body or the speaking being first he calls it, and then he calls it the speaking body. And in fact, the the, the, the contemporary clinic, uh, Jacqueline Millet's contemporary clinic will talk about the palette, the speaking body as the unconscious, as today's unconscious. So they don't really generally would you know use that word anymore i mean they do but it's it's the un- the speaking body is the thing that it, the clinic works with hmm okay all right so let's do a uh, big transition here and let's start talking about the value of psychoanalysis as a cultural tool um or in cultural criticism so how does it work i mean particularly you can talk about your work um you focus especially on uh, artificial intelligence and sex and technology. So how are you using your work to critique culture, society, etc.? Well, I, first of all, just on, on a general basis, I would say that Lacanian psychoanalysis is, is to me essential for any um, worthwhile cultural criticism because uh, I think it's really essential to to have a conception of the Lacanian subject and the mode of enjoyment of any speaking being, if you want to put it in Lacanian terms, if you, when analysing any cultural phenomena or um, political formation, because otherwise you end up falling into very... I mean, wh- when I say psychoanalysis, I, I, I suppose I'm distinguishing it from a sort of psychologizing mode of interpretation that I suppose is what you're comparing it to if we talk about how people try and understand humans based on psychological data, which, as we know, is is not a very useful way of talking about humans. Then you end up with Jordan Peterson. 
Um, <laughs> you know what's funny? You're talking about psychologizing people. Initially, like immediately, my mind went to Jordan Peterson. Yeah, motherfucker. Exactly. Why is he always haunting my fucking mind? <laughs> exactly. That's why we need to erase him. But um, <laughs> but um, no, I mean, because the thing is, you know, psychoanalysis is the most uh, rigorous and um, and and far ranging and complex theory of subjectivity that exists. Uh, I mean, I, I challenge anyone to find a thinker who's who's done, done more and engaged more with different modes of, of thinking to to radicalize the, the the question of subjectivity than Lacan. And therefore, I think that he is a brilliant tool still and will will continue to be so to to talk about politics and to talk about sex and to talk about culture and film so basically yeah no i mean i think yeah so that that's just the kind of general value of lacanian psychoanalysis as far as i'm concerned but um in terms of my own particular research area which is um the question of the relationship between sex and artificial intelligence um which I approach from the Lacanian standpoint. Um, the reason I'm I'm interested in it is because I think that specifically the question of AI um, challenges notions of subjectivity and and it, it and challenges uh, Lacanian concepts in a way that I find really interesting. And I think Lacanian concepts can also get inside. Um, different philosophical ideas about artificial intelligence in a really exciting and interesting way and sort of push Lacan a bit further that's my particular interest in it because I think it can it can it can do even more with Lacan than than's been done before Hmm. which Lacanian concepts does uh, AI tend to challenge um well I mean Lots of them, but I think um, particularly uh, the question of um, the subject and the question of enjoyment is one that through um, AI, we can sort of start to think about it in new ways. So that's why, I mean, like you'll probably have seen, I don't know, from stuff that, you know, my work is associated with talking about sex robots a lot, um, but actually... Whilst I do, I am interested in uh, sex robots. It's not. It's not particularly because of the, the kind of sensational idea of a of a a robot that you can have sex with. It's more the conceptual idea of what a an automated um, artificial intelligence uh, means for sex, the concept of sex psychoanalytically, um, and so that's why I think that it's. It's like a sort of meeting point where between psychoanalysis and philosophy where you get AI with this is weird, strange um, hybrid. Can we just pause for a minute and talk about enjoyment? Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, especially to try to clarify it for, for people listening, when we hear the word enjoyment in everyday use, it generally relates to feeling good or being happy or some measure of stimulus and input that releases dopamine or whatever the fuck else Mm -hmm. it is, right? Mm -hmm. And we're enjoying ourselves in an activity. You go to a fair, you go to a good film, I'm enjoying myself, um, whatever that means, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, That's not exactly how you're using the word. No, Um, no. So so enjoyment or, well, jouissance for Lacan is um, a, a central 
um, concept and probably one of the most important concepts of all of psychoanalysis. And it doesn't actually, it, yes, it, it can mean feeling good and feeling nice, but that's one small part of the story. It's actually a very strange paradoxical concept, which is, um, which is both pleasure and pain, um, <laughs> but also get throughout the, the, um, the course of Lacan's uh, teaching, the, the question of jouissance changes its meaning. Um, first of all, if, if we just think about the jouissance as in how much one uh, enjoys in one's own suffering, that's a very obvious way of understanding, oh, okay, so, so enjoyment isn't really just about, oh, I'm having a nice cake or, or I'm having sex or whatever, it, you're in, whatever type of enjoyment you're having. It, it's to do with how you're engaged with the world. So uh, we all, all recognise very, very easily the question of, of people enjoying their own suffering or even ourselves enjoying our own suffering, even, you know, cry, crying or thinking about something and there is some sort of strange uh, thing that you keep repeating and keep going back to that gives you some enjoyment. So this question of enjoyment is a really, really difficult one because it's it's very difficult to describe or to place in one uh, idea. And in fact, Jacqueline Miller has uh, six paradigms of enjoyment that he would align to six different moments in Lacan's teaching, uh, which which correspond to very different models of of what enjoyment could possibly mean. Mm. So I'm I'm just scribbling down as you're talking here and. The way you were describing jouissance here, for whatever reason, and tell me if these concepts in the history of philosophy have any relation to the things that Lacan is working through and maybe from which he's seeking to distance himself. But I wrote down Conatus, and I'm thinking about Spinoza. Then I wrote down will to power, and I'm thinking mm -hmm. about Nietzsche. And then I wrote mm -hmm. down vital impulse, or Elan Vital, and I'm thinking about Henri Bergson. And mm -hmm. then I circled pleasure principle. And then obviously mm -hmm. that's Freud. Is mm -hmm. this like a lineage out of which he's developing this term, but then from which he's distancing himself? And you can throw in Aristotle's eudaimonia as well, right? Mm. Mm. I mean, I don't, I, I don't, I, I don't know how far he would say that he was developing it from, well, any of any of those particular thinkers. Of course, you know, from 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 Freud, definitely he. Um, takes the idea of the pleasure principle and then the death drive basically becomes jouissance. So at one point you could say the death drive is jouissance for Lacan. Oh, okay. Um, and actually I would even say that jouissance uh, is the, the most accurate way of, of summing up jouissance would be to call it the death drive because it's mm. this particular concept which actually takes um, the human outside of the biological model and outside of the rational model. And it's a much more useful way of understanding human behavior. If you think about the death drive, most of the things that we do are, are, are motivated by things that are not necessarily good for us. They don't necessarily preserve our well-being or our mental health or our bodily health, but usually they're to do with something outside of that, which is actually related to, to, to the death drive. So basically, the internet is a giant death drive machine. Yeah, basically, <laughs> you could call it that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus. Yeah. It's a shared networked uh, field of jouissance. 
Yes. But, but you know, like, uh, so Miller has his six paradigms, which, which are the imaginarization, signifierization, impossible jouissance, normal jouissance, discursive jouissance, the non-rapport. These are six different paradigms, supposedly, uh, that relate to different um, moments in Lacan's teaching and have very different um, char- characteristics. Uh, uh, and uh, So, therefore, it's, it's difficult to say, oh, jouissance only means this in Lacan, um, mm. because it, depending on where you're, what you're reading, it will mean something else. I mean, I think it would be great. I want to tie this now into kind of some of the stuff that you've done on AI and sex robots. Particularly, you sent an article over on kind of analyzing the film Ghost in the Shell that I thought was really interesting that will relate to how we Mm. understand enjoyment, jouissance, and and AI and stuff. But real quick, I Mm. I got a question. How do you deal with the fact that someone like Lacan has these six different paradigms or these moments of developing thought? You know, people are like, well, in Seminar 7, it's this, but then in Seminar 16, it's this, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So, like, uh, what is it? The uh, signifier of the father becomes the master signifier because he wants to, like, degenderize it or something like that, Mm -hmm. right, later on? Mm -hmm. So how do you view his – I mean, do you kind of think that we can take those six paradigms in thought and that they're still all relevant for us now when we're doing cultural criticism? Or do you think that we ought to kind of follow along in his own um, development of thought and then take the later stuff as being more authoritative or the early stuff? Like, Mm -hmm. how does that work? Um, Well, I wouldn't say – I don't know. Like, I mean, I think pretty much – what the general thing that people tend to do with Lacan is just to use La- to use the question of jouissance as a sort of blanket term that that kind of co- a coverall uh, term that would explain um, any kind of mode of of behaviour in um, cultural criticism, for example. But in the clinic, of course, it has you know it would be it would be different, um, and I can't speak for mm. um, for that, but. But I mean, look, with with the question of um, if we think of Zizekian cultural criticism, right, and um, the the object A, and um, what is what is most characteristic of Zizek's work is the is is you know the the capitalist critique, so that that the object is just this kind of um, ubiquitous thing that is the, the object cause of desire, which we're all chasing after, which we can never really have, and it's just this impossible object, which is one way of, of talking about jouissance um, and the kind of uh, very well-known way of thinking about Lacan as a, a theorist of lack, as something that we can never really have and we always want. And, but I think that um, there are more interesting ways to use the question of jouissance, and certainly now in respect to having to deal with new um, formations, new political formations, new uh, terrifying um, developments in in um, in far, the far right, and of course with the digital world, all these different modes of um, enjoyment that are happening online, which are, it's not maybe as useful just to talk about the object A or something anymore. I don't think that that's mm. maybe the best, the most useful tool that we have. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably a good way to transition into the um, article on the uh, imagining the apocalypse or apocalypse of sex. Um, so you mentioned Austin a second ago the movie The Ghost in the Shell uh, or Ghost in the Shell, and I'm familiar with uh, this film and the. I've had some friends that were really into the television series or the manga or whatever else existed before the big Americanized version of it. Um, so we'll be good Zizekians, and even though I haven't seen the film, we can talk about analyzing hmm. it. Um, <laughs> so 
it's about the, the movie revolves around a kind of, I guess it's not really a sex robot uh, as much as it is a, um, a woman who becomes like cyborgized or whatever the term is for becoming a cyborg. Um, how do you relate that to this idea of the sex robot that you're analyzing? So, um, well, in, in that particular paper, I'm, I mean, I, I'm talking about, first of all, um, Lacan's uh, reading of um, Kant with the Marquis de Sade. So, uh, first of all, it's a kind of um, preempting the question of a, a, I suppose, a sex robot ethics in that um, in that paper where I'm, I I talk about uh, how Lacan reads the the art enlightenment. Um, you know, idea of ethics from Kant via the libertine novelist Marquis de Sade's uh, own um, brutal and sadistic uh, mode of um, talking about ethics. So rather than... So what, what Lacan does, instead of um, reading Kant as a Sardian, he reads Sade as a, as a Kantian. So in... In um, Sard's horrific uh, detailing of the kind of torture that he inflicts upon this young girl um, in in uh, philosophy in the boudoir, amongst many other novels that he wrote, um, he finds a very particular um, structure of ethics that he says is even more Kantian than Kant's um, ethical system, and he what he's trying to say is is that actually. Um, there is an there is an um, inconsistency in the Kantian system that Saad for, that Saad completes with his own uh, way of relating to um, enjoyment and the way that the law structures our enjoyment. So that in going to the end and in following your absolute um, enjoyment at the expense of someone else, Saad's system is is a much more perfect philosophical system of ethics than. Than Kant's system, even though what you re- what results from it is something truly horrific. Um, but the point being is that Sard's for Sard's um, libertines, they were interested in the death drive that we've just been talking about. They were interested in this second death that is um, beyond castration. So uh, mm. the the idea that you can infinitely enjoy something and that you can infinitely kill something, or that you could infinitely be killed, but it's something that humans can never really experience because we always have a, a, a biological cycle that brings us back from pleasure to pain. You know, we can't actually be, f- f- you know, when they're talking about in a philosophy in the boudoir, these like perpetual uh, erections and, you know, these sort of p- piles of bodies like doing all these kinds of weird obscenities. They, c- they can't actually happen in reality because humans can't do that. So the problem was for s- the, Sar- the Sardian liberties that they were always thwarted in their pursuit of jouissance, right? So this is a kind of undead enjoyment. It's a kind of uh, robotic, um, artificial, non-human enjoyment. So that is a long way round to introducing the question of the sex robot. <laughs> and so for me, this question of the sex robot is what inhabits the fantasies of Sard's libertines. So basically, they want to be sex robots. They don't just want to have a sex robot, they want to be a sex robot, right? Um, so that, that, hence why I use the example of the film Ghost in the Shell, which is not, which is not a film about sex, actually. In fact, there is no sex in, in the film at all. But 
why it's relevant, why it's interesting is because the character of uh, Major Killian, she is re... Uh, her brain, supposedly, is uploaded into a cybernetic body. So she is basically immortal, in a sense. But yet her subject position is the same. So even though she's supposedly got new memories, she's a different person, she still retains this indelible uh, kind of fault line, this indelible stain in reality that no matter what she thinks, her sort of positive, substantialized content of her thought, uh, it, it doesn't erase the fact that she feels there is something gone and missing and lacking, you know, so she's always searching mm. for her mother, right? So this kind of like question of the subject in relation to the artificial body and its capacity for pleasure and pain is to me very relevant to the question of the enjoyment uh, as as exposed by the libertines, which is um, a question of the subject's ability to um, to persist beyond the body and to to endure. Uh, and, what, and what you find within this story is that ultimately um, she she kind of all of her pleasure and pain is related back to her mother and what you know whether she can exist with um it, her new mother or, or or go back to her old mother is very interesting if you if you read it alongside uh philosophy in the boudoir which is a, it has an extremely gruesome end for her because she ends up the girl in it it's, it's, sorry to to talk about explicit things but um she she has the the, fan, the ultimate fantasy for her is the rape and murder of her own mother supposedly in this book so it's a completely horrific um, idea of what this woman's notion of jouissance is. Um, but, but what's significant about it is that it's to do with her, this, the, the question of rewriting somebody's enjoyment. Because in this, in the philosophy in the boudoir, the, the central character, uh, while she's having these fantasies, the gruesome fantasies that in the end they end up fulfilling, she's being reprogrammed by a new mother, Madame de Saint-Ange, who is basically facilitating her escape from her biological, uh, sorry, from her, from her old mode of uh, enjoyment. And in the same way we can see with the ghost in the shell, her old body only allows her to live in, in one way and her new body allows her to be a weapon, like a, a, a fighting machine that can go beyond and live forever. So this, this is the question that I was interested in in that, in that particular essay. Okay, bear with me. I'm going to say something crazy, and this might not mean anything to you, Isabel, but Troy. Mm -hmm. And so I'm doing a read-through of the Bible at the moment. Both Troy and I have, like, theological training in the past. So you're talking about the idea of being thwarted in, in jouissance. That's what these libertines, they're seeking, like, let's say, perpetual, endless jouissance, which mm -hmm. um, it seems to be that they're thwarted potentially in their pursuit of the infinitude, right? They want uh, the perpetual... Uh, taste of jouissance, which would be the absolute access of infinity. And then you talk about this, uh, now applying this to Ghost in the Shell, or this new body. Troy, I'm thinking about the desire of like uh, Christians to reclaim the new body and the new heaven as being like the realization of this kind of Ghost in the Shell kind of thing. Do you see what I'm... I literally wrote this down after reading uh, Isabel. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> That's crazy. Holy shit. Yeah, there's an analogy with like resurrected life as Paul um, talks about it, right? The perfected body that escapes the tormented cycle that he talks about in like Romans 7 of being um, 
like the, the conflict of different desires and wants and feeling like you're um, not united, mm-hmm. like that there's this grasping for that in the future, this resurrected life. And it's, yeah, it does seem like that's recapitulated mm-hmm. in forms of post-humanism and cyborg existence and stuff. Like yeah. Which that. seems to me a desire to overcome the effects of the quote unquote fall, which I think that we can read the fall as a psychoanalytic story of desire and longing where the human exactly. subjective position stands between infinitude that is pure jouissance and finitude. That is the mm-hmm. fact that we are always thwarted from the realization of jouissance. Yes, yes, exactly. And and you're absolutely right that the, the sort of the uh, biblical um, myth of the fall is is a is a is a sort of dramatization of this very question about the sin of knowledge because actually the the Adam and Eve story is not about the sin of sex it's about the sin of knowledge so it's the in the knowing is when the humans become um fall from grace right so yeah. this this is this very much describes the sort of uh, the psychoanalytic relationship between sex and knowledge in, in that they're completely and utterly tied to to one question um so that in in kind of in it structurally once you once you know something uh you become human and doomed and 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 mm. sinful and rotten and um and and enter into the cycles of sex reproduction and the biological and the the question of mortality which is what 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 Christianity wants to escape from basically this is I've I've been I've been extreme I've been trying to figure out how to fit this into my current research at the moment which is based mm-hmm. on like um, market speculation and things like that. But I've been thinking a lot about the algorithm, right? A lot of people mm-hmm. are writing about the algorithm at the moment. And I'm thinking about the algorithm as being a, a type of um, obsessive desire to thwart castration, right? That mm-hmm. it is the per- potential purveyor of all knowledge that it can overcome and analyze and predict and mitigate all uncertainty just so long as we have the appropriate linear algebraic equation. If we just have enough inputs, then the pursuit of uh, algebraic and algorithmic perfection via machine learning and artificial intelligence is that thing that is potentially going to overcome our finitude to reach jouissance. Is that kind of what you're working on? Yeah, I mean that that's de- definitely um part of it and um I think that well the question of the singularity of course is is very interesting because it in a way it's almost a sort of pre-modern um conception of of philosophy it's precisely the one that Lacan was was uh, against which is this kind of equation of um being and thinking as being the same thing so um the idea that you can just uh create um thinking through algorithms that you can create beings through um equations and formulas uh is a very curious one but at the same time i'm not so sure that it's it's not possible <laughs> um so so you know i mean the, the blue the blue brain project for example which is happening in lausanne i don't know if you know about that but I don't. um well, they are um, recreating simulations of the brain, um, uh, growing ever and ever, and gathering more and more data in order to model um, brain states to to gather information. But essentially, it's a it's a silicone version of the brain, which, in theory, 
you know, they are they're they're just modeling the brain on a non-biological substrate. So there is no reason actually why it couldn't become a a proper brain. <laughs> we just we mm. just don't necessarily have the the actual data to to do it, you know, the the technology to do it yet. But so there's that aspect of it, but there's also, you know, the um the question of, you know, like Neuralink for example with um yeah. uh what's his face? Elon Musk. <laughs> um you know, uh, developing these these interfaces that go directly into the brain and merge the biological synaptic systems with the with microchips and and supposedly that that research is going is going off and and they're applying for um permission to use humans uh, subjects for it at the moment i mean at the moment they've only got like monkeys and rats i think or hmm. something but but what's what what will happen you know people are put going to put their name down for it lord knows what will what will be what will happen once there will be sort of non-biological chips inserted into the brain i mean you know, that this is a question that I think that psychoanalysis has to grapple with because we're not just dealing anymore with humans and their symptoms. But do it you doesn't not mean... think? Yeah, yeah, sorry, go on. No, do you not think that there's a pathology in this? That that the pathology of the algorithm that like I'm thinking about it in terms of just like market speculation, the pathology mm. of like efficient markets, and as long as we just get enough information, then we'll never have market crises, and then we can just have the capitalist system um, perpetually, uh, you know, get hyper profits and super profits and whatnot because we'll have the perfect algorithms. But it seems to me to tie into something even maybe more fundamental than that, which is like a type of pathology of youth which fits mm. into this pathology of the infinite because it's a pathology that resists the negative. It resists mm -hmm. cessation. It resists the end. Um, and it is essentially negentropic. And so it mm -hmm. seems to be that even the desire for seeking this algorithmic dominance is itself kind of a strange and weird perversion. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that the, well, the quest for, the quest for eternal youth and the quest for the perfect, the perfected human form and the quest for uh, absolute knowledge of are, I mean, I don't know if, are they pathologies? I don't know. I mean, aren't they just what humans always have tried to do? Um, I don't know if there, I don't know if there is any other way of being human than trying to always get beyond mm. yourself and, and, and think that you can um, mm. sort of triumph beyond that. I mean, that was what Freud was talking about with the prosthetic god really uh it's a sort of like constant urge to go beyond your partial your partial drives which you can't ever really um achieve but you're always going to try because that's what makes you human yeah in a weird way if we could say that the biblical articulation and then let's say the monotheistic articulation of that that anxiety that you're talking about, that, that humans have always desired to kind of overcome limitations. If that's mm. one religious expression, I would kind of, and this is maybe just my naivete at the moment and it's totally speculative, I think I mm. would seek some type of religious expression that is the opposite of that. Mm. Maybe this is where like mysticism comes in, which is mm -hmm. a wrestling with the negative rather than trying to actually overcome the negative through um, some type of... Uh, I don't know, bridging of, of the divide or something like that. And I don't even know if that's possible, but mm. that tension between the one, um, which might be, maybe we could call it biblical or Edenic or something like that. And I don't know what the mm -hmm. other one would be, but maybe it's like a withdrawal, a complete, 
uh, rejection of maybe this is the indifference that you talk mm-hmm. about in uh, in Baudrillard, right? Kind mm-hmm. of like the indifference to the world that mm-hmm. that refuses to play the game of the algorithm or something along those lines. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, so are you, what you're saying, you're advocating that as a stance that we should take up, or that you see that? Yeah, or, yeah. I kind of. And I have no idea why I feel mm. like that's the best mm. way, but I do have concerns, and I'm using the word pathology on purpose because mm-hmm. I do feel like it is pathological that we mm-hmm. desire perpetually to overcome finitude as we can supposedly seek the infinitude, but in so doing, we only induce further anxiety in ourselves. And yeah. if we build structures and systems that um, operate by like intensified rates of that pathologization, then the anxiety mm-hmm. becomes even greater and greater and more extensive and more ubiquitous. And yeah. so then the question for me is, okay, how do you really find adjustment, to use a psychoanalytic term, within that pathological tendency? And I think for me, it has to be, some people would say you go through and maybe you come out on the other side. And then what I wonder is, or is it a break from that tendency altogether? And then I would just ask, what the fuck does that even mean? I don't know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, I don't know. Like, I think if I was a, if I was a, a clinician, I'd say, well, you just need to come into my, um, into my <laughs> clinic and I'll, I'll just sort you out and everything will be fine. And we'll talk All for about the low, symptoms, low price of $250 an hour. Exactly. All you need is to come and see me four times a week and I'll cure all of your problems and bankrupt you. But yes. no, I'm joking. No offense, uh, clinicians obviously love you. Yeah, um, yeah, of course not. Yeah, we love we love you guys. Do we your love, thing. We love you. Yeah. Um. No, I mean exactly. I don't know. I, the the tension between the the individual symptoms of the subject or some of the subject, and and how to fit that into society, which basically is designed to keep you completely crazy and going mad and being unsatisfied and insecure and suicidal is an impossible battle i don't know and i don't know what the answer is but read lacan i say that's usually this is why i get so frustrated with popular politics today Mm. because i think politics doesn't focus enough on theories of subjectivity you know Mm -hmm. this is a lot of my work has been on sartre my book is on sartre Mm -hmm. um and i think sartre I mean, not I think, I know that like Badiou's theory of subjectivity mm-hmm. and of the event are heavily indebted to Sartre's work. He explicitly mm-hmm. says so. And then um, then there's like a Lacanian element as well in a lot of my work that I'm interested in. And then mm-hmm. like post-subjective stuff like with Deleuze. But nevertheless, I think we need to wrestle with the theory of subjectivity because if we don't, then we end up, I think we end up just stuck within this system that is trying to just perpetually produce anxious subjects yeah and we don't yeah. realize that that is almost the central the central element of how the capitalist system pacifies yeah. subjects within its ambit right like it's yeah. able to pacify us because we enjoy our exploitation and I know that that's a shitty way to say it, but mm-hmm. there's an element that needs to be understood. What does that mean to say that we enjoy our exploitation? Because obviously we don't. We're anxious. We're angry. We're pissed. We're taken to the mm-hmm. streets. Uh, we're hopped up on opioids and antidepressants. Mm-hmm. So people aren't quote unquote happy. But that, again, is the different understanding of enjoyment. But we have to really wrestle with theories of subjectivity. And mm-hmm. most, I think, popular politics – and I don't want to shit on them. I know I shit on them too much on the podcast, but like Jacobin and stuff like that, they don't wrestle with this enough they Mm -hmm. just they kind of i don't think they understand precisely what you said a minute ago that we have a system that is trying to make us fucking crazy 
Yeah. And that's what, that's how it operates. That's how it reproduces itself. And exactly. then we embody it and we almost we are complicit in yeah. the reproduction of our own anxiety. Exactly. And I think we should add that not only that, but if if you don't take advantage of this time to analyze subjectivity, others will, mm-hmm. right? And I think this kind of references back Ooh, to, yeah. you know, Isabel, you said earlier that, you know, Jordan Peterson's like the daddy who's always in the back of your mind. And yeah. the reason is because at the very least he notices that this has to be done. Yeah. Right. Exactly. He does it in a in a kind of like folk psychological way. And but that if that it's popular for a lot of especially young men because this is it's satisfying a certain need mm-hmm. to um you know analyze interiority in this way. So if if we don't do it, someone else is going to Exactly. And and that's the danger of someone like Jordan Peterson is because he for, he's just about um uh erudite enough to the ears of people who haven't got a clue to think, oh, this is somebody who knows what he's talking about and uh he's really gonna to tell us something about humans and, and explain explain what's going on. Um, and of course, then lots of people fall, fall for it and and then get convinced by by his nonsense uh, mm. kind of theories that are just based on a complete <laughs> bullshit. But, you know, the problem is, is that you're right, is that there's no point in just having a sort of... Um, Marxist critique or a sort of critique of capitalism and a left, a general leftist um, raging against, oh, you know, we're all being exploited and isn't the world terrible and evil? And without actually having a theory of subjectivity, which 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 implicates ourselves in this question and how our own enjoyment is precisely part of the problem and how it's not not a question of like punishing ourselves in any sort of religious sense, but but of recognizing that we are conflicted beings that live in a body which has all these different things going on and different um, uh, uh, kinds of demands upon us that are going to mean that we aren't ever able to to act in a, in a way that would be you know according to the Kantian the Kantian categorical imperative we can't do that uh, we we have to recognize what are these strange um, forces at, at, at work which psychoanalysis goes into great detail to 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 theorize about but just on a general level you know not everybody has to be um, a psychoanalyst or or read philosophy or anything to to sort of start thinking a bit bit deeper bit more deeply about what what who you are as a subject and what your unconscious is saying to you and um mm. to, to put it in sort of uh, sort of um, accessible terms of just actually understanding that there are things that form your personality and form you and, and and drive your actions that aren't rational and and are not necessarily always good and most of the time they're probably bad but that doesn't mm. mean that you're an evil person but you have to recognize them and i think that's the first step towards any sort of proper use of uh, psychoanalysis for like political theory for example you have to recognize what's what's really going on in in the deep dark recesses you know mm. well I mean, I think that's an excellent point for us to kind of stop now and maybe put an ellipsis and say, let's get you on again in the future. And hopefully we can. Can you be our resident uh, expert on psychoanalysis that we go oh, to? Every with, once in a while? with pleasure. <laughs> of course. Perfect. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Well, now that you've said that, we'll be calling you every other week. For, yeah, that's uh, no, good. No. <laughs> Just do it. Do it. <laughs> 
Um, no, that would <laughs> this be this week in psychoanalysis. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's right. With Isabel Millar Miller. Millar, uh, Millar, Millar, Millar. Yeah. That's right. No. Um, okay. Before we we have you sign off, where can mm-hmm. people find stuff that you've written, both popular and kind of academic stuff? And um, and then I can post um, some stuff in the in the show notes below so that people can have access to some links. Okay. So I mean, I think. For my sort of academic stuff, you'd find it on my academia page. Um, but for sort of more um, blog uh, type cultural analysis, you can find um, on Hysterics Discourse, which is my blog. Um, so there's links to to all my talks and um, and papers and stuff there. But again, the the sort of more theoretical hardcore stuff is is usually on the academia page. And I also have a YouTube channel, which is Hysterics Discourse as well, which has only got a few videos for now, but any other videos that I have will be on there. Cool. That sounds great. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And Well, thank you so yeah, much. Thank you, Isabel. It's been great. It's been really good to talk to you, and I hope I didn't um, babble on too much, but I suppose that's why you got me on. So. Oh, we, no, we, we encourage the babbling on this. <laughs> okay, good, good, good. <laughs> Sweet. I'm glad. That's our mode of discourse for sure. <laughs> oh, fantastic, fantastic. That's the fifth mode, right? There's uh, the <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the master, babble, the university, exactly. the hysteria, and then you've got the babbling. The analyst, exactly, and then the babbling. Exactly. Perfect. <laughs> So thank you so much to Isabel for that uh, great conversation. I'm really looking forward to having her on again and talking about psychoanalysis, maybe even more in depth rather than just more of the the broader review that we went to, because Lord knows there's a whole lot of depth there to deal with. Sounds good to me. Let's go ahead and move on to our next segment, which is the sticky leaves. This is where one of us talks about whatever it is that's bringing them jouissance in a possibly meaningless world. So Austin. What are you enjoying this week? This is how I become a new body and I overcome the finitude and I actually taste infinitude. I swim, motherfucker. I love swimming. Have I told you how much I love swimming? Swimming is like going backwards in evolutionary time, dude. Not forwards. Or am I becoming a dolphin and maybe they're ahead of us in their societal evolutionary development. And so somehow I'm actually connect. There's actually this thing. It's called the mammalian dive reflex. Do you know about it? No. So it happens when humans, uh, for example, humans, but it's not just humans. I think other mammals uh, experience this as well. But when like water is splashed on your face, even you all of a sudden your body goes into some sort of like alert alert mode and it, um, you know, wa- like uh, blood starts pumping to different extremities in different ways and it alerts you and it wakes you up. That's why when you splash water on your face, it like wakes, wakes you up. It's not just like the temperature, but actually your body feels like it's going to drown almost. And so it uh, signals this like crazy alert response and it wakes you up and it charges you and it gets your body all alert. So that's only <laughs> so like, intensified. So what you should do is put a gun in your mouth in the morning to wake up. That's what you're saying. That will, yeah. Well, I don't know what the, the mammalian bullet reflex. I, I have no idea what that is. The mammalian steel chamber. Yeah, I don't know what that is. But no. But so that's why when you dive in the water, or when you're, you know, that 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 instance of when you dive in the water, you you feel alive, and it just 
wakens yeah, you up. Yeah. I mean, unless you're terrified and petrified of swimming or something like that, or you, you're like anxious about getting your hair wet or make it so that you can't enjoy the the sensation. But that's what happens is there's this sense of like freedom and opening up. So, um, so there's, there is some like biological science behind it, but just beyond that, like I really, abs- I love swimming. Um, my mom, when she was pregnant with me, she used to swim as a child. I swam all the time. I was in pools like all day in the summer and then at the beach in the summer and then um, at the lake in the summer. So I was always around water and I was always swimming. But it's been a while since I've actually not been in the ocean. You know, I've done like like body surfing, surfing and shit like that. But that's just like little bits here. And that's not actually just swimming proper. But before my lung collapsed, I had gotten into a habit where I was swimming about three or four times a week. And uh, no, I don't think that's what triggered the collapse. Uh, I actually asked that. I thought I was like overexerting myself and working out too hard. Uh, that in the baby shark ab workout and other shit like that. I was like, did I did I cause this? And they were like, no. Um, as a matter of fact, it's the opposite. Whenever I got out of the water, my mom is still a big time swimmer. I would actually call her and I remember telling her, I was like, you know, we would call each other most days or we'd like text each other. And I'm like, oh, you know, I, I went to the pool today and I swam X amount of laps and then I drank my bone broth. Thanks, mom. Like whatever, like that kind of <laughs> shit. Right. Um, but I would tell her how great I felt when I got out of the pool because it felt like my lungs were open. I felt like a dog, like I could breathe air from miles away and I could smell things better and my lungs were open. My lung capacity was open and I felt alive after I would get out of doing like a good, even just like a two kilometer swim. Um, and I was so into it before I had to go to the hospital I actually went and I got those speedo shorts you know the ones I'm talking about not the speedo like brief looking ones but the short ones that look like bicycle pants yeah you would oh yeah dude and check this out I bought them Thursday night and I was so excited because Friday morning I was gonna wake up and try my new speedo shorts and I figured (laughs) I would be more like not aerodynamic what water dynamic um but that I would be more hydrodynamic is that the thing um and then my fucking lung collapsed friday morning and i didn't get to go swimming and i haven't been able to try these shorts yet and i'm so excited that hopefully soon i still have to wait a couple more weeks but soon i will be able to get back into the pool and swim and i'm actually really excited about just wearing my fucking speedo shorts (laughs) (laughs) this is this is up there for the weirdest sticky leaves you've ever had dude Oh, gosh. But no, I just, I fucking love swimming, man. And I want to talk about the benefits of it. I mean, it's an amazing workout. Um, Obviously, if you have trouble swimming, you might feel anxious about the idea of swimming. And I understand that. You can start slow. But honestly, it is the best workout you can get. It's really good on your joints. Whereas running, for example, is really, it's running is really bad on your joints. Like, really bad. Like, not even like, oh, yeah, no, no, it's bad on your joints. Um, especially if you have an injury, I do, I broke my femur when I was 19. And so my leg, my left leg is a little bit fucked up. Um, even still to this day. So swimming is one of those things that doesn't put any strain on my knee, which is fantastic. Um, beyond that, uh, depending on what you're doing, but if you're doing the crawl, if you're doing the breaststroke, and especially if you're doing the butterfly, it is a full body workout. I'm talking back arms, legs, core, uh, lower back, upper back, shoulders, everything. And 
so it will tone you up and strengthen you at the same time because you also have the resistance of the water. So it's a resistance muscle exercise as well as an amazing cardio exercise that also doesn't put strain on your joints and your ligaments. Fucking swimming is absolutely amazing. And I swear to God, you will feel amazing when you get out, especially if you do a really good heavy uh, freestyle swim or butterfly or breaststroke swim. I mean, if you use a kickboard, you'll get it a little bit as well just because you still get a good exercise. But if your head is under the water and you are pushing yourself for a couple kilometers, I swear when you get out, your lungs will feel so open. It'll feel like you have three lungs rather than two lungs. And that's always a good workout when you feel like you have more lungs than you actually do. Um, But yeah, I fucking, I love swimming, man. And I've been so bummed because I haven't been able to do it since my surgery. Uh, since I got sick, which was over a month ago now. And then, of course, I got my new tattoo, and you have to wait about six weeks because the chlorine will fuck with the color during the healing process, so I've still got a couple more weeks. But I did that on purpose. I didn't want to get my tattoo after I had totally healed from the hospital, so I actually probably rushed it. We talked about this in my shitty minute when I got a little bit of infection, probably because I rushed it and my body was not entirely healed and whatever. I put a little strain on the body, but, um, but so I still got to wait a couple more weeks for the, uh, for the tattoo to heal up and then I'm going to get back in the water. So I can't fucking wait. I love swimming so much. So yeah, you know, that's my sticky leaves. Swimming you know is great amazing. exercise. Do it. You know what's amazing about swimming is hmm. you can, you can do it and then not realize you're tired until you're done. Like after you get out, right? Like, mm. is it just because when you run or do some sort of um, strenuous activity outside the water, the sweat, your sweat warms you, right? Um, mm. And so it makes you kind of feel tired. But when you're in the water, you kind of stay, stay the same temperature because the you know surrounding water is the, kind of enveloping you that you just don't get tired until you're done. Is that how it works? There's got to be something to that, right? Because the whole point of sweat is to cool your body down, but it doesn't seem to do it well enough right <laughs> yeah the like, way that there's because the water temperature in the pool is going to stay the same and not be affected by your body temperature yeah 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 like if you sweat a whole bunch then maybe it'll cool your ass down but that's why you got to like dunk yourself with water and people splash water on their face when they have like a long workout when they're playing ball for a really long time or they're running for a really long time you know you squirt your water bottle on your face because that gives you that jolt of coolness that you need but yeah when you're in the pool you don't overheat so I think you're able to push yourself maybe a little bit harder, a little bit longer when, when you're in the pool. The, the real problem is that um, the breathing can be difficult. If you don't get your breathing right, then, then that can really fuck up your whole rhythm and you won't be able to push yourself to the point where you're really getting a good cardio workout, right? Like you got to get your form right and your breathing right. There are great YouTube videos that can help you with that. But if – because if you don't get that right, then um, – then you kind of you feel like you're drowning, and then you get really exhausted really quickly. But it's just because you run out of breath, and uh, and yeah, so that can be the toughest thing. But yeah, in terms of like, in terms of uh, I don't know, I can I can swim two kilometers, which is a probably a more of a, a caloric. Uh, what would you say? Like burns more calories than running a half a mile, but the fucking running a half a mile actually even sucks. And that's nothing running a half a mile, right? Mm-hmm. Like even, even two kilometers swimming is, is better than running a half a mile, or at least it feels better. It feels less strenuous, you know? I don't know how, why that's interesting. How, how long does it take you to swim two kilometers? That's a lot. Hey, yeah. Um, 
it's about like, you know, 20-ish minutes, 25 minutes, something like that. So not bad. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll rubber stamp your sticky leaves, man. Swimming is great. I mean, yeah, it definitely, like playing an instrument, the, the you know, getting used to it and getting your rhythms down and making sure you're breathing right, it's difficult. But uh, I've mm. had a pool before. and I, Once you get used to it and you get everything down, it's really, really great and invigorating workout. Even if you just get around in the water and kind of fuck around, you're getting a good workout, right? Like you just go to the beach and you just play in the waves for dude. You know, water, an afternoon. Pool basketball is one of the greatest sports that there is. Dude, it's so hard. <laughs> it's it's you amazing. Played, you gotta go jungle ball like, style, right? Like no fouls, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then you got to play chicken, where you get like on top of each other, or, or on top of each other's shoulders and shit like that. Uh, it's bad for your back, man. I ain't doing that shit. Yeah, you got to get in deep enough water where there's no strain, you know. So you're so you're underwater. <laughs> yeah, get that snorkel out. <laughs> you got to get a snorkel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what I was thinking. Uh, so yeah, sticky leaves. So so far, argan oil, honey on your face, bone broth, apple cider vinegar, swimming. What else have we talked about that's fitness, body, vanity related on this podcast? That's just recently. Yeah, that's just recently. Get a get a bidet. Troy taught me about the beauties of having a bidet in your house. Oh yeah, man, that's my life. Sticky leaves, best twenty bucks <laughs> I ever spent in my life. Uh, if you're a dude and you're getting older and you're getting hair in weird places, shave your nose. Get one of those little tiny trimmer things so it can get up yeah, in your nose and your great. ears. If you're a hairy dude in your chest and you got chest hair, make sure it's not coming out of the top of your shirt unless it's like a button-down shirt and then it's kind of hot, you know. Um, but <laughs> if it's but if it's like a crew neck shirt and you got the little stuff, no. Either tuck that shit in or trim it or something. Take care of it, you know. Um, I don't know. I'm just really excited to someone's got to collate all of our our like health vanity manscaping related sticky leaves and then we can have a list and we can just promote that on no, our okay. website <laughs> that's okay don't do that <laughs> okay don't do that yeah please don't take the time to do that <laughs> all right sweet so we'll go ahead and wrap up the episode there thank you again to isabel for coming on and talking with us about psychoanalysis philosophy etc cetera, etc cetera. thank you all for listening we hope you enjoyed this discussion um, and then, of course, as a reminder, if you want to be able to recommend future episode topics, you can sign up at patreon.com slash owls at dawn and uh, take part in the Democracy Motherfuckers tier. Or if you do the $5 a month tier, you get the Democracy Motherfuckers and the newsletter and access to all the bonus episodes. But go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn and get access or get information on how you can access all of that. Uh, what else admin wise are we forgetting, Troy? Y'all know where to find us. Um at owls underscore at underscore dawn on all the various instas and twitters and social medias and whatnot you can find us at owls if you want to leave comments for the episode and show notes and shit like that anything else uh i think that's pretty much it unless there's anything else you gotta say just one more thing i can think of dude what's that that's the donny americano